Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, Subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, November the 10th. First, I'll be talking to Steve Orenston, the founder and CEO of Zoom2U Technologies, which enables private drivers to become couriers. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. But first, let's talk to Steve Orenston. Steve, tell us about Zoom to you. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Zoom to you is a, um, a marketplace which is designed for businesses and consumers to connect them directly to a courier for a same-day delivery. So what gap in the delivery market is it trying to fill? Yeah, look, I mean, I, when I started the business, it was went through the experience of actually placing a delivery online, never knowing when the courier was actually arriving. And so with that sort of thought about, can I, uh, can I build an experience that's going to be much, much better for the consumer and actually knowing when that delivery is occurring and using a lot of technology to do that. And, and so what we're, what we're fulfilling is allowing e-commerce and retail businesses to have something delivered on the same day, but also being able to see the live location of that driver arriving rather than having a time window between nine and five o'clock and, and never actually knowing exactly when that delivery is going to occur. So with that, so that puts the consumer more in touch, but does the consumer actually know when the courier is coming? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we send a text message and the text message gets sent to the user's phone. They click on a link and the link will actually show them the live location of the driver with an estimated arrival time uh, and even the ability to actually call that that, that driver directly as well. Okay, so how has it been taken up? Uh, it, look, I mean, we've now, you know, we're close to sort of 3 million deliveries have been gone through the platform. Uh, we started in 2014, over 80,000 customers, lots of SMEs and consumers use us, but also some really large brands um, like Nespresso use us yeah, for having all their deliveries to their to their customers. I'd imagine COVID would have actually really increased this market massively. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think what COVID did for our business, which was yeah, it was, it was really interesting, was it put a lot of pressure on retailers and e-commerce businesses to think about their delivery. Um, obviously, when they were having volume being pushed through Australia Post, there was huge amounts of delays, days when they weren't actually turning up to actually pick up volume. 
And, you know, that really impacted a lot of e-commerce businesses and retail businesses. And so for us, you know, it was a really positive thing where suddenly these businesses are like, well, actually we can't, we can't rely on the traditional providers and have our business, you know, collapse because of them. So what are the alternatives and how can we get product to customers faster? And we saw, yeah, definitely some, some decent uptick from customers, but also customers now really thinking about what are they doing from a delivery point of view and um, looking at alternatives. And that's, you know, where, where we've been, been re- very lucky to be part of that through COVID. And has there been an issue with uh, getting drivers, getting enough couriers on board? With- no, look, I mean, it's quite easy for a driver to sign up onto our platform and drivers uh, have the ability to, you know, use their existing vehicle. So it's quite easy for us to be able to scale up. Um, drivers, you know, choose when they're going to work, uh, which bookings they actually take and, you know, whether they do deliveries for, you know, five hours in a day or two hours or for the whole week, they have complete flexibility in being able to do that. And so having the ability to be that flexible gives gives um, the ability for, for many drivers to, to sign up and it, it's quite easy to, to scale up. And I noticed consumers can actually sign up to uh, Zoom to you as well. Is that yes. right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So often, you know, if I need something delivered and I want it today, uh, which I always do, <laughs> you can ring up a, a someone, you can ring up, you know, whether it's a chemist or a retail store over the phone, order it over on over the phone, pay for it by credit card. And I'll be like, I'll send a driver to um, to pick that up and uh, you book in a Zoom to your driver and they'll, they'll pick that up for you. Right. There's been no issues with retailers or anything like that. Retailers have come on board. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, you know, I, I think, like retailers are now used to, you know, people wanting things faster. And I think, you know, COVID's really sped up this, this adoption of this as well. Definitely. So what makes it different from other delivery service is the actual contact you have with the, with the service itself. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, our, our big differentiator is that we're a marketplace connecting the customer to the driver. And so you're building, you know, essentially a relationship between the two parties and the ability to actually be able to communicate with that driver, but then the technology layer that sits over the top so that you can actually see exactly who your driver is and when that driver is actually arriving and, and seeing that live location on the map. Right. Okay. And, and you've developed a, well, you've, you've acquired an app for your business. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So there's, there's two key parts to our business. One is the Zoom to you um, core business. And then you've got this other product called locate to you and locate to you is a lot of the technology that we developed inside of zoom to you. We built it into its own standalone application and that's designed for any business that's doing, that's managing their own fleet of their own drivers. Um, primarily most of those businesses are actually um, doing deliveries and they might be delivering some product. Amart furniture is one of our sort of larger customers. Um, they're delivering, you know, furniture to their, their customers and what locate to you allows them to do is to actually take all their bookings for the day, optimize their route, build them into runs for their different drivers, and then provide that same live tracking experience to the customer. So rather than saying, Hey, we'll deliver it today. We can actually deliver it down to this 15 minute time window and provide those SMS alerts to those customers. Um, towards the end of last year, we made an acquisition of an app called local delivery. And that sits on the Shopify e-commerce uh, platform. And what that allows you to do is if you're a Shopify e-commerce owner and you're wanting to provide local delivery to your customers, you need to be able to ask the customer, actually, when do you want that product delivered? And here are the available time windows to do that. And this add-on app allows uh, Shopify stores to be able to provide that functionality throughout their checkout process. And that connects then directly into Locate to you. So that's very much tuned into the retailers as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So any, you know, e-commerce retail store, you know, whether it's a small business or a large business using Shopify, they can take advantage of that, that technology. Now, how did you manage, how did you develop the technology? Look, so my background has been in technology. Um, I started my first business when I was 19. I'm 41 now. 
And, you know, I've always sort of been around businesses and helping businesses use technology. Uh, and my business prior to Zoom to you was a company called Connector Field, which was a job management and scheduling application. And so we had customers right across the world that were using our software. And it was, you know, in the early days of, you know, software being sold as a service and, you know, iPhone came out as, as we were sort of building that product. And so, yeah, I've had a lot of experience in, in working with lots of businesses and building software and seeing that scale across the globe. And towards the end of 2013, that business got acquired by a company out of the US called Fleetmatics. And um, so worked with them through the acquisition and stayed with them for a little while and then, you know, looked to start something new and, you know, saw that issue around receiving that delivery and never knowing when that drive was arriving. And I'm like, I can solve this. This technology can fix this problem. And uh, we've been at it now for a little while since uh, 2014. So did you develop the technology yourself or did you have a team developing? I've got a team, team of developers, both uh, in Australia and then also offshore as well. Now you've listed on the ASX, I think that was in September. Yes. Uh, what are your growth plans? Oh, look, I mean, you know, part of the reason for us to list on the ASX was to get access to capital. And, you know, I see for me personally, it's about building this business into a substantial business over the, over the long term. I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the, the, the challenge of, of building a business and seeing that business grow. And so, you know, I'm planning on building this business. I don't, I don't want to retire. So until, until I'm, you know, a, a lot older than I am today. Um, and so being in that ASX platform gives you access to that capital and that scale that we're looking to, to get to um, both in Australia, but also globally from a zoom to you point of view, uh, as a core business, we'll, we'll always maintain what we're doing in Australia and continue to grow that. And I think there's a big opportunity in, in the Korea market in Australia is about a $5 billion market. So there's lots of opportunity to disrupt the existing players that are there. Uh, but globally, from a software point of view, what we're doing with OKTU is, you know, we're selling that to customers in Australia, but also customers throughout the world. And, you know, we've now got customers throughout the US and uh, Canada and the UK and, and you know, many other countries. And so we really want to see that product having people on the ground in those countries. And so we've now got a, a salesperson in, in the US uh, and also in the UK. And so really sort of expanding what we're doing in, from a locate to you point of view. Right. Okay. So in the end, uh, your company could become quite global. hundred uh, percent. It's already, uh, we're, we're already on our way there. You know, we've definitely see locate to you has been, you know, a very global product. And from day one, we built that in a way so that it could be used across many different countries and ability to convert in languages, but also working across different time zones. And also a lot of the infrastructure that we've built is in Microsoft's cloud uh, hosted platform, uh, Windows Azure. And that allows us to then have servers in many different countries uh, throughout the world and synchronizing those servers, et cetera. Well, Steve, it's been fascinating to talk to you and thank you very much for your time. Excellent. Thanks, Leon. Great to be here. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, unemployment has eased to 3.6%. What's your take on this? Well, while the headline figure of 3.6% unemployment rate obviously looks pretty good, it was a little bit of a mixed report overall, in large part because the decline in unemployment was driven entirely by a decline in participation, as opposed to strong employment growth. So employment was only up about 6,700 people, which is a pretty low number. Participation declined by 0.3% percentage points, which is a pretty low Large one month decline. So that's what was driving the decline in uh, the unemployment rate overall. I think when you look at all the, the pieces in, in the report, I, I think that you can only really view it as being pretty mixed. Um, the labor market is still very tight, but there wasn't a, a great deal of strength in the September figures. Participation report, meaning that uh, fewer people are looking for work? Uh, fewer people being engaged in, in the workforce. So participation rate refers to not just people who are employed, but people who are seeking employment. 
And what we saw in September was that there was a very large decline, about 20,000, in the number of people who were unemployed. So those people shifted from being unemployed to just being outside the, the labor force. Now, that strikes me as being a little bit unusual, and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, next month or the month after we saw those people jump back into the workforce, which would push participation back to, to where it is, has been for, for much of the past year. So I think right now, given what we've seen with the participation rate, the unemployment rate might be slightly understated. So 3.6, I think it's probably about a 3.8 based on, on what we're seeing on the, the participation um, side of things. What about full-time employment? Uh, has that changed at all? Yeah, so this is a really interesting trend. So for much of the, the pandemic jobs boom, it's been driven by full-time employment which was a great sign. We love it when the economy is creating high quality full-time jobs. That has changed completely over the past six months. So over that period, employment's increased overall by 160,000 people. Again, really good number for a six-month period. But full-time employment hasn't changed at all. No increase at all over that, that period. So all of the job gains over the past six months have been part-time roles, which suggests that the economy, while it's still creating a lot of jobs, isn't necessarily creating the same quality of jobs as it was, say, 12 months ago. So this is perhaps a sign that uh, labour market conditions are beginning to, to weaken somewhat. And what about hours worked? Another point of weakness uh, in the report. So hours worked were down 0.4% in September. And this is a, a trend that we have seen over the past few months, um, that of uh, declining number of hours worked. Overall hours worked is down about 2.6% from its peak in, in April. So that, again, suggests that there's something going on with labour demand, that uh, perhaps there isn't as much um, demand for workers out there uh, as there was earlier in the year, which is consistent with a, a more challenging economic environment and consistent with perhaps a, a little bit of a, a softer uh, labour market overall. And uh, what about job vacancies and job postings? Yeah, so while we are seeing a little bit of uh, weakness in metrics such as hours worked and participation, the forward-looking measures of labour demand remain pretty healthy. Job vacancies and, and job postings have come down a little bit from their peak, but they're still well above pre-pandemic uh, levels. You know, there's about twice as many job vacancies out there as there was typically before the pandemic began. So that does suggest that a, a, a big spike in the unemployment rate is, is somewhat unlikely um, because if you do lose your job in the current economic environment, you can reasonably expect to find another job out there. Now, as I suggested before, maybe the, the new jobs that are, are being created or are left vacant aren't perhaps of the same quality as the jobs we were creating 12 months ago but there are still jobs out there. That would suggest that uh, the next set of figures could still be around the same level and not spike up to 4%. Yeah, I mean, I do anticipate that the unemployment rate is going to gradually increase um, towards 4%, maybe by the end of the year, maybe early next year. But I think a, a, a big spike in the unemployment rate is unlikely because, like I said, there's just a lot of jobs out there waiting to be filled. And so if you do lose that job, um, you are likely to find a lot of opportunities in your area of expertise, um, you know, when you're, when you're searching online for a new opportunity. Now, I think, you know, overall, when we look at the big picture, I think it's clear that tighter monetary policy has um, curbed consumer behaviour. Um, we're, we're seeing quite a bit of weakness in the, in the retail sector and household spending uh, more broadly. It seems that monetary policy is having the intended impact upon the economy. That said, you've got things like petrol prices rising. That's, that's going to put... Uh... Uh, pressure on inflation? It, it will put pressure on that headline figure, uh, which can tend to be very volatile. And of course, um, petrol prices being one of the most volatile components of the CPI. What they are more concerned about is um, things such as service sector inflation, 
which continues to, to be running quite hot by historical standard. It is higher than the RBA is probably comfortable with. Uh, it's interesting because uh, the latest figures, the latest jobs figures suggest the economy is weakening and that raises questions about what's going to be happening with wages. Well, yeah, I, I think overall there is still a bit of a imbalance between demand and supply in the labour market, which should continue to put some pressure on, on wages. I expect that private sector wage growth should exceed 4% um, by the end of the, the year. Overall, wage growth might be a little bit lower because the, the public sector is um, providing a little bit of a, a drag on overall growth. Um, but, but wage growth should still be can, should still be reasonably high over the remainder of the year and into the first half of, of next year. Um, but you're absolutely right. As, as labour market demand comes off, um, we, we could see those the dynamics in the labour market with regards to demand and supply sort of shift a little bit uh, in favour of the employer and the, and the recruiter, which could potentially impact wage growth uh, a little bit next year. What will that do for inflation? Well, certainly from the RBA's perspective, they're hoping that uh, wage growth can be contained um, in, in the current environment with um, productivity growth very, very low. I, I think wage growth of 4% or around that level is is probably inconsistent with the RBA's 2 to 3% target. So if wage growth was to, to soften a little bit next year, it would certainly be uh, welcomed by the RBA as they do try and get back to within that 2 to 3% target band. And so if wages growth is 4%, what would that do for inflation? Look, there isn't a sort of one-to-one -one relationship going there. Wages is one of the many components that feeds into consumer price growth um, across various industries. But the RBA is very concerned around service sector inflation, and a large part of that is driven by domestic factors such as wage growth. Um, so if we do continue to see a, a pickup in annual wage growth, that's going to feed through to service sector inflation. It's going to keep it higher than the RBA would obviously prefer. And if we do continue to see very strong wage growth into next year, then it's going to make it very difficult to get inflation back to that 2 to 3% target, in which case we might find a situation where maybe inflation stalls out at 3.5% or 4% and the RBA looks at the situation and goes, well, maybe we need to tighten a little bit further in order to get it back um, down to that 2 to 3% target. So it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves. My personal view is that the economy is slowing quite um, considerably. I'm particularly worried about that household sector and what we're seeing with spending and, and saving. And I think it is likely that the economy will slow sufficiently to, to bring down that service sector inflation and mean that the RBA doesn't have to do anything next year. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. There's a lot of things that can shift and, and change. But if I'm reading the, the household sector correctly and what's happening with consumption and, and retail um, spending, then I, I think the economy is going to be pretty weak next year. And if that happens, then I think it is likely that um, domestically uh, driven inflation is going to come down quite considerably from where it currently is. Down to how far down would it get? Oh, I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to put a, a figure on it. Uh, historically, if you have domestically driven inflation of around 4%, that is consistent with meeting the RBA's 2 to 3% target because inflation from overseas tends to be a lot lower. I think it's potential that we could get down to that. At, at the moment, it's flying, you know, 5 6%, which is well above where it needs to be. Well, Callum, it's been terrific talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, the downturn in Euro business activity accelerated last month as demand in the dominant services industry weakened further, a survey showed on Monday, suggesting there is a growing chance of recession in the 20-country currency union. The economy contracted 0.1% in the third quarter, official data has shown, and Monday's final Composite Purchasing Managers Index, PMI, for October indicated the block entered the final quarter of 2023 on the back foot. HCOB's PMI, compiled by S&P Global and seen as a good guide of overall economic health, fell to 46.5 in October from September 47.2, its lowest reading since November 2020, when COVID-19 restrictions were tightened on much of the continent. That was below the 50 mark, separating growth from contraction for a fifth consecutive month, and matched a preliminary estimate. Manufacturing activity took a further step back in October, according to a sister survey last week, which showed new orders contracted at one of the steepest rates since the data was first collected in 1997. It was a similar picture for services and the new business index. A gauge of demand was its lowest since early 2021, as indebted consumers feeling the pinch from price rises and increased borrowing costs kept their hands in their pockets. Services activity in Germany, Europe's largest economy, slipped back into contraction in October amid persistent weakness in demand, while in France it shrank again. Italian services activity contracted for a third month running and at its fastest pace in a year, but Spain bucked the trend and the services sector grew at a slightly faster rate last month. And a global recession could be triggered by the conflict in the Middle East as a humanitarian crisis compounds the challenges facing an already precarious world economy, two of Wall Street's biggest names warned last weekend. Larry Fink, chief executive of the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, said a combination of the Hamas atrocity of 7th October, Israel's resultant attack on Gaza, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year had pushed the world almost to a whole new future. In an interview with the Sunday Times, he said, When the Russian invasion occurred in Ukraine, we said, the peace dividend is over. Geopolitical risk is a major component in shaping all our lives. We're having rising fear throughout the world and less hope. Rising fear creates a withdrawal from consumption or spending more, so fear creates recessions in the long run. And if we continue to have rising fear, the probability of a European recession grows and the probability of a US recession grows. Jamie Dimon, the chair of America's biggest bank, JP Morgan, told the same newspaper that the combination of Israel's war on Hamas and Russia's invasion of Ukraine were quite scary and unpredictable. Here in the US, we continue to have a strong economy. We still have a lot of fiscal and monetary stimulus in the system, but these geopolitical matters are very serious, arguably the most serious since 1938, he said. What's happening on the geopolitical front right now is the most important thing for the future of the world. Freedom, democracy, food, energy, immigration... The comments come three weeks after similar apocalyptic remarks from Diamond, who was one of the world's best-known financiers. 
Three weeks ago, he issued a warning that the world may be living through the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades, with escalating conflict potentially having far-reaching impacts on energy prices, food costs, international trade and diplomatic ties. At the bank's most recent update to Wall Street last month, Diamond said the war in Ukraine, compounded by the attacks on Israel, may have far-reaching impacts on the energy and food markets, global trade and geopolitical relationships. This may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. And Australia's borrowers have been dealt another blow, with the Reserve Bank lifting its key interest rates for the first time in more than five months to ensure inflation keeps falling. The RBA board on Tuesday decided to hike its cash rate 25 basis points to 4.35%, a 12-year high. The increase, widely anticipated by economists, was the central bank's 13th rate rise since May 2022. New Governor Michelle Bullock and the board had lately sent repeated signals they were poised to resume rate rises if inflation didn't slow as expected. The RBA remains ready to hoist interest rates again, if required, she said in an accompanying statement. The Reserve Bank's reasons for the hike centred around stubborn services inflation, noting that key data since the October meeting pointed to inflation remaining higher for longer. As Bullock noted in a statement on Tuesday, after lifting the base rate by 025 a percentage point to 4.35%, inflation is likely to be only back to the top of the RBA's target range of 2-3% by the end of 2025. The RBA wanted insurance against missing that target, and Tuesday's rate rise is it. Bullock said any further rate rises would depend on upcoming economic data and issues including developments in the global economy. And Westpac's annual net profit has surged by 26% to $7.19 billion as its business and institutional banking units benefited from higher interest rates, offsetting margin pressure from intense mortgage competition in its consumer unit. Profit in the second half came in at $3.19 billion, up 32%, compared to the same period a year earlier, and in line with market expectations. That was still 20% below profit in the first half of the 2023 financial year. And Brookfield and EIG are understood to be in the process of launching a hostile takeover bid for Origin Energy by Christmas. The offer will be at a lower price than the $9.53 per share offer that is currently on the table, through a scheme of arrangement structure, where shareholders vote on the transaction for it to gain approval. Under takeover bid structure, the suitors buy shares directly on the market. It is understood that the takeover bid will be put forward by both Brookfield and EIG within the coming weeks, subject to a minimum acceptance by 50.1%. It means the race will be on for the two bidders to amass shares after Australian Super recently lifted its interest to just under 15% from 13.67%, outlaying up to $182 million to buy shares through Macquarie Capital. The bidders were recently released from their standstill agreement, which means they can now buy at least 5% of the company if they also launch a takeover offer. The move comes after Australian Super, the country's largest superannuation fund rejected the Sweden's $16 billion deal to buy Origin, which was an 8.2% or $1.2 billion increase from its original offer of $8.81 per share, maintaining the offer undervalues. Company and the number of companies that collapsed in October soared 43%, with an increasingly aggressive tax office ramping up the pressure as the holiday slowdown season looms for many under-pressure businesses dealing with interest rate rises. Revive Financial Head of Business Restructuring and Insolvency, Jarvis Archer, said with the July-September quarter business activity statements BAS fall in October. Many businesses have watched their ATO debt jump. There were 569 liquidation 
or administration of appointments nationally in October, almost 43% more than 399 October last year, according to preliminary data from the Australian Securities Investments Commission. In October, New South Wales recorded 237 company collapses, up almost 22% of the 195 recorded 12 months previously, while Victoria had 138, an increase of 79% from 77 the previous year. The rate five in Queensland in October, 42% more than the 60 recorded in October last year. West Australia recorded 54 compared to 32. South Australia, 34, up from 19. The ACT, 10, up from 5. And Northern Territory, 4, up from 3. Revive Financial Head of Business Restructuring Insolvency, Jarvis Archer said construction, hospitality and retail had seen the biggest jumps in failures. And small to medium businesses are facing an increased risk of cyber attacks as larger organisations harden their defences against malicious data breaches, prompting cyber criminals to look for softer targets. A new report by CyberCX has sounded the alarm on cyber attacks facing small businesses as larger companies acquire more sophisticated defences against cyber attacks. The research also reveals total cyber extortion attacks are at record levels, with ransomware attacks and data theft extortion the most popular types of cybercrime since 2019. Professional services firms remain the most affected by cybercrime, followed by engineering and manufacturing firms, and then healthcare and IT. And Services Australia will get 3,000 extra staff after a more than doubling of claims in the first quarter of the financial year, and a decade-long rundown in headcount prompted the Albanese government to boost the agency's budget by $228 million. The funding will seek to reduce a blowout in call waiting times for Centrelink, Medicare and child support services, including to more than 30 minutes for employment services. Expansion in welfare eligibility, including for the seniors' health card and childcare subsidies, drove a 155% spike in claims for the three months to September 30. Claim levels had already lifted by nearly a third over the last five years. Service Australia staff are also having to work through a significant backlog, welfare debt recovery, after those efforts were paused during the pandemic. Faced with what an official described as a perfect storm, the Cabinet's Expenditure Review Committee agreed to lift staffing levels as part of a mid-year economic and budget review. During the past financial year, only 61% of calls were answered within Services Australia's 15-minute target, down from 68% in 2021-22, and well below the 80% target the agency previously targeted. The call delays were the worst for welfare payments, with only 36% of calls answered within 15 minutes. The big investment in new frontline staff comes after average staffing levels in the large service agency had fallen over the last decade, down from 31,000 2012-13 to 26,600 at lace count. The number of staff focused on service delivery had fallen from 25,000 to 21,000, causing a ballooning in overtime. Over $95 million was paid out in the last financial year for a series of Saturday working blitzes to process backlogs. Headcount across Australian public services on track to rise 15% higher than pre-pandemic levels to record high of nearly 192,000. This compares to 166,000 to 2015-16, the lowest staffing levels during the previous coalition government. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten said 2,000 of the new roles will be new frontline staff and almost all will be hired outside of Canberra. And China has declared the relationship with Australia to be at a new starting point following an historic meeting in Beijing on Monday night between Anthony Albanese and Chinese President Xi Jinping. In the first formal meeting since their breakthrough talks in Indonesia a year ago, Mr Xi heralded Mr Albanese's efforts to repair the relationship. Mr Albanese told Mr Xi the occasion was historic and Australia, along with other countries in the region, has an interest in continued stable growth in the Chinese economy. In private talks... 
After their opening remarks, Mr Albanese was expected to raise a gamut of bilateral issues with Mr Xi ranging from concerns about China's territorial encroachment, its human rights abuses, the ongoing detention of dual citizen Yang Hengjun and trade. It was also anticipated he would invite Mr Xi to visit Australia. Mr Albanese will hold separate talks with Premier Lin Kuang-ong on Tuesday, as well as received a ceremonial welcome at the Great Hall of the People. China wants Australia's support for its entry into the Regional Free Trade Pact, the CPTPP. Mr Albanese said on Sunday China had to lift its game in terms of adhering to a global rules-based order on trade before it would be accepted. He also sought assurances that China would lift its remaining trade sanctions on Australian lobster and red meat exports. And the corporate watchdog is taking Telstra Super to court, claiming it failed more than 200 times to respond to customer complaints quickly or adequately in a landmark case, which is the first time a retirement fund has been sued for this type of alleged misconduct. Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones warned super funds the government would consider further regulation of the sector if it did not drastically improve its customer service and retirement advice, building pressure on funds to do better. Fund bosses have conceded their customer service offerings fall short of the standards consumers expect, but say they need the government to reform financial advice laws if it expects to significantly clean up their act. In court documents filed late on Friday, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission alleged that Telstra Super failed to comply with its own internal dispute resolution processes for 40% of the 330 complaints received from customers in the 15 months to January this year. This included failing to respond to 106 complaints within 45 days, as super funds are required to under law. One complainant did not get a response from Telstra Super for 276 days, while others waited from 101 to 105 days, as it alleges. The profit-to-member fund that manages more than $25 billion in retirement savings for nearly 100,000 members historically only offered to Telstra staff. The fund opened up its membership to the public last year. Now, Australian Super was the worst retirement fund for complaints last financial year, with grievances about the behemoth more than doubling to 1,750, or more than two times the average of major providers on a per-member basis. There were 6.1 complaints per 10,000 customers made to the Australian Financial Complaints Authority in the 2023 financial year about Australian Super, compared to an average of 2.7, and far outstripping the next highest, which was Cebus, with 4.4. Australian Super recorded the biggest jump in complaints last financial year year compared to the previous one, with an increase of 127% analysis of AFCA data shows. The fund, which manages $300 billion plus in retirement savings for more than 3.2 million Australians, said it was ramping up its investments in customer service and response. The Australian Retirement Trust recorded the next biggest increase in complaints, with 92.4% the analysis revealed, followed by CBIS 85.8% and Host Plus 85.3%. CBIS, AMP, BT and Host Plus rounded out the top five most complained about major funds, with grievances per 10,000 members of 4.4, 3.5, 3.3 and 3.1 respectively. And the corporate watchdog's decision to abandon naming and shaming poor audit quality among the big four consulting firms removed a key deterrent of poor behaviour, a review has concluded. The Financial Reporting Council, which oversees Australia's financial reporting framework including accounting and auditing standards, also criticised the Australian Securities Investments Commission decision to slash annual audit quality checks, which are already very low. In a review of audit quality oversight published on Monday, the Council 
council said ASIC's decision to conduct just 15 reviews of high-risk audits in 2022-23 raised serious questions about whether it had sufficient coverage of the audit to enable adequate monitoring. That number in 2022-23 was a third of the 45 conducted the year before, which was also lower than in previous years. Given that there are approximately 1,900 entities on the Australian Stock Exchange, the number of files reviewed is very low, the report said. The audit inspection program involves trained officers from ASIC reviewing high-risk audits of company accounts to assess if enough has been done to justify findings. The FPR report noted the public reporting of poor audit quality among Australia's six largest accounting firms provided an important deterrent to poor behaviour, including media and parliamentary attention on negative findings. Now, axed naming and shaming of firms was one of a key few completed recommendations of the 2020 Senate report into audit quality. Other deterrents under the existing program included financial penalties for audit partners from a negative ASIC review imposed by the audit firms being concerned about the possibility of losing or not winning audits based on higher levels of negative findings compared with their competitors. In July, there were reports ASIC had scaled back its oversight program and sacked its chief accountant in a restructure that allocated more money and staff to enforcement rather than prevention. The change sparked criticism from peak accounting bodies who labelled the decision surprising and concerning. ASIC said undertaking 45 reviews each year was too time and resource intensive and that a more targeted approach, focusing on specific and significant issues rather than a broad sweep, would yield better results. The same restructure also cut staff from ASIC's corporate finance function that scrutinised mergers and acquisitions, company fundraisings and share market listings. That team was reduced from more than 20 to about 12 at one stage, sparking concern from lawyers and investor groups. And the Sydney jewellery shop and his owner have been ordered to pay a record amount of general damages for sexual harassment, which included him slapping the bottom of a female employee and asking her on several occasions to start an intimate relationship. Federal Court Justice Anna Katzman awarded Fiona Taylor $268,233.64 in damages after finding she was sexually harassed by Simon Grew, owner of Grew & Company, and was victimised after filing a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission. Morris Blackburn lawyer... Mia Pantechus, who ran Ms Taylor's case, said the decision set a record for the highest general damages awarded in a sexual harassment matter under the Federal Sex Discrimination Act, SDA. Ms Taylor was awarded $140,000 in general damages, $15,000 in aggravated damages, $23,070.75 for compensation of past economic loss, $46,284 for future economic loss, $3,000 for future out-of-pocket expenses, and $40,000 for victimisation. The largest general damages award under the federal SDA was $120,000 in 2019. Mr Grew and his company were also ordered to pay Ms Taylor's costs. Ms Pantecha said the ruling was an important step towards increasing sexual harassment compensation awards. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to David Chin, the President and Chief Marketing Officer of Alexa, the Australian-born customer experience and data platform. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's in the market for the week ahead. For the most exclusive access to lead economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to lead economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon.leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.